Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we're going to tell the tragic and incredible story of the SS Sultana, the greatest maritime disaster in American history that happened 50 years before the Titanic sunk to the bottom of the sea. This is a story of engineering failure, of human greed, and of a news story that was buried by bigger headlines, and so most Americans have totally forgotten about it. Welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast. Few stories that I'll ever tell in this podcast reach the level of disaster and catastrophe that the SS Sultana did in 1865, and it is an incredible story. It's a very sad story, and it's one of those stories that, as you think it can't get any worse, it continues to get worse, really all the way to the end. So I warn you to start with, this is not a happy ending style story. It is an incredibly intriguing story, and it's one that has been largely forgotten by the American people, unless you're really kind of a big Civil War historian, or you love the history of steam power, because that is where these two points converge, and they converge on a riverboat seven miles north of the city of Memphis in April of 1865, and they converge in very tragic form. But before we get to that, we need to talk about why so few people remember the SS Sultana. And when you learn about what happened on this ship, when you learn about how bad this catastrophe was, how does no one remember it? How is this story not even front page news in places across the country? 1865 was the end of the Civil War. There was a lot of stuff going on. And April of 1865 is a month that is perhaps packed with more tragic and calamitous news than maybe any month in American history. We live in an era of 24-hour news cycles. We live in an era where at any point of the day, at any moment of your life, you can pick up your phone and find out what's happening at every single corner of the earth. All you have to do is punch in some digits or punch in some letters into your phone, and you can get news from literally anywhere. Well, in the 1860s, of course, that technology did not exist. Communication, because at the end of the Civil War, so much of the uh, telegraph lines in the country, so many of the railroad lines had been destroyed. Communication was very slow to get around, and that's part of the reason why no one remembers the Sultana. So before we get into the actual Sultana disaster, let's talk about the month that was April of 1865 in the United States. We all like to believe that we live in interesting times, which we do. We all live in interesting times, but listen to the rundown of what happened over the course of about three weeks in April of 1865. On April 2nd, 1865, Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederate States of America, was captured. On April 9th, just a week later, General Lee surrenders at Appomattox to General Grant, effectively ending the battles of the Civil War. Six days later, on April 15, 1865, Abraham Lincoln is killed in Ford's Theater in Washington. And on April 26th of 1865, John Wilkes Booth is killed by federal authorities. The very next day, the SS Sultana explodes and sinks in the Mississippi River, killing 1,700 people, the worst maritime disaster in American history, and no one remembers because no one put it on the front page of the newspaper after 620,000 people had been killed during the Civil War. Another 1,700 really didn't move the needle. So now you have an indication of why people have largely forgotten about what is just an absolute tragedy on every single level. We need to figure out who those 1,700 people were, why they were on a riverboat in the Mississippi, and what actually was happening on April 27th of 1865 at approximately 2 o'clock in the morning when hell came to the folks that were on the SS Sultana. 
So as I mentioned earlier in the open of the show, this is a story that just kind of keeps getting worse. It never really finds bottom. And the part that starts getting worse uh, really let's begins right now. We know that 1,700 people died. I've said that a couple of times right now. But who were the 1,700 people? By and large, these are some of the saddest people in the country or perhaps in the world at that point. They are virtually all Union soldiers on their way home. Not just on their way home, on their way home after being captured and being held inside the horrific prisoner camps that were set up during the Civil War. And they were coming from two distinct places. The first was Cahaba, Alabama, which was a a smaller facility as far as the prison camps went. It was still horrendous. I mean, it was designed to hold about 500 prisoners. By 1865, there was 3,000 prisoners in there. Cahaba, if you were lucky enough, quote-unquote, to go there, it did have about the lowest death rate of any of the Civil War prison camps. Um, It ended up horrible by the time that everything was said and done because of the massive overcrowding. And also, during 1865, during this period of time, the rivers were all overflowing. The Mississippi had some of the biggest floods in in its recorded history during 1865, and Cahaba, Alabama was located along a river as well. And these prisoners, when the rivers flooded, would spend days standing in water up to their knees, days at a time. And you can think about all the different problems with that in terms of sanitation and disease and everything else. The other prisoners that were involved and the other POWs that were involved in heading home, they thought, came from the Andersonville prison, which is the most... Um, uh, the most horrific of the Civil War prisons. This was located in Andersonville, Georgia. All these men had been moved, and this is all happening. The the story, really, of the Sultana begins in Vicksburg, Mississippi. So those prisoners that were uh, able to make the trip, and I'm talking about the most, the saddest, the saddest, most depressed-looking people you've ever seen in your life, emaciated. They've all been moved from Andersonville, Georgia, to Vicksburg, Mississippi, to a place called Camp Fisk. And Camp Fisk had about 5,000 prisoners total. And this was a a parole camp, if you will. This was the holding area for the Union Army and the place where they were kind of organizing how they were going to get these guys home. And just to touch back on Andersonville, this is a place that had 45,000 total prisoners in it over the war. 13,000 of them died over the course of the Civil War. 45,000 people went in and about a third of them died for various diseases, and you can figure out what those were, mostly due to sanitation and poor diet. On April 1st, 1864, there were 76 or 7,100 prisoners in Andersonville. By August 31st, 1864, there were 31,000. In May of 1865, the place was totally liberated. Basically, a month after this, the last prisoners were moved out of Andersonville. The death rates in the Civil War prison camps were 10 times the death rates on the battlefield. If you can imagine that, how bad things were on the battlefield in the Civil War, it was quite literally 10 times worse to be in a prison camp. And the northern camps were not much better. It's not like uh, they were club med. It was all very bad because you had way too many people in way too small a space. They were outside living in the elements. And again, sanitation, um, cleanliness, hygiene, all of that went straight out the window. So we know that all these prisoners have been brought together at Camp Fisk. We understand that we need to get them home now. They need to be sent home. The rail lines in in the southern part of the United States had been destroyed by the Union Army. Once the Union started to march through the south, one of the first things they did was to destroy the rail lines, which makes sense because you can limit the movement of goods, you can limit the movement of supplies, weapons, and most importantly, 
movement of people. So that left really one option for mass transit, if such a thing existed at that point, to get all of these guys home. And that was using the rivers and using the extensive amount of riverboats that were available to um, move troops, to move goods, to move supplies. So the SS Sultana, being a riverboat, uh, is a perfect unit, a perfect machine to move some of these troops home. The problem comes in when the greed strikes. But before we get to the greed, we're going to talk about the SS Sultana itself. In some ways, I wish I had some sadder music to play during this podcast because the uh, little ditty there maybe isn't quite as fitting for the macabre subject, subject matter that we have here, but let us continue on anyway. So the SS Sultana is, uh, at the time of this explosion, is a fairly cutting-edge ship. It was built in 1863, and we've all seen a paddle wheeler, in this case a double paddle wheeler style steamboat before, or a riverboat. They've been in movies all over the place. You can go to Disney World. You can ride on one around the whatever it is, Adventureland uh, area. Uh, we've all seen them. It is a very iconic American image of the steam paddle boat with its two stacks coming up and the big paddle wheels, either one on the back or one on either side. So built in Cincinnati in 1863, the boat was built and intended to be, you know, a passenger boat, but mostly, these were mostly freight boats. They were moved, they were designed to move a lot of weight and to do so in fairly shallow waters. And this is, uh, ship is powered by four pretty large steam boilers. And we're going to get to all that in a little while. But I wanted to give you the layout of the machine here. The capacity of the Sultana was 376 people. Rated capacity. There were 70 first-class cabins that if you had the dough, you could buy one of the cabins. Um, or you could just be a deck passenger, as they were called in the, in the, uh, in the time. And you would just pay your money, and you really didn't have a room. You just kind of sat on the deck and went inside and got your meals and sat on a bench and looked out the, looked out the, uh, the side of the boat as you went kind of paddling up the river. So as this ship is designed um, mainly for use in hauling cotton, that is what the original intent was. And that's what the ship did most of during its lifespan. It was hauling cotton up and down the southern part of the Mississippi River. And then the government would employ these riverboats to move troops when needed um, up and down the river as well. So between the cotton and between the troops, um, this was a pretty good profit-making enterprise. Now, the neat thing about riverboats, the way they were designed, is that some of these things could operate in as little as two feet of water. And, you know, this is a 1,719-ton vessel that is made completely of wood and iron, of course. The iron coming in mostly for the boilers um, and some of the structural elements. But it is a varnished, oil-painted tinderbox on the water with the four giant boilers hiding below its decks to power those big side-wheel paddles that uh, push it around and there is, of course, a crew on this boat of 85 people. So you have 85 crew people, the capacity to take 370 passengers, and then the capacity to move a lot of freight. And we're talking, you know, dozens of tons, or I should say hundreds of tons, could be loaded onto this, this vessel and moved around at a time. And the real big thing to key in on here, the big thing to remember is that 376-person capacity. And I will continue to remind you about that 376 person capacity horsepower wise it's tough to rate what these boats would have made for horsepower but but the the boilers are very very strong and we're going to get into some of the physics of steam boilers in a little while here when we get to the actual tragic events that happened on the ss sultana but 
by and large, we're talking about a uh, a steamship, a steamboat that you would picture in your mind, like any time you'd think of a of a riverboat, and you'd think of the you know Dixie song playing in the background and that kind of thing from the old uh, yeah from the old South. There are three main players in this story that we're going to talk about extensively. The first one is a man named James Cass Mason, and he comes into play because he is the captain and the partial owner of the SS Sultana. The second man to talk about is Captain Reuben Hatch, who is the quartermaster of the Lower Mississippi area for the Union Army. And the third man is a man named Captain Frederick Speed, who is an officer that was working on the logistics side of this operation to get these soldiers, these thousands of soldiers at Camp Fisk, moved out and sent up the river uh, onto various transportation hubs where they could be brought back home. So James Cass Mason is an interesting case. He is a hot dog captain. He's in many ways, these riverboat captains were like the train engineers of the time. You had a schedule, and you kept it. And if you could beat the schedule, you were a hero. So Mason, as part owner of this boat, early in its early in its career, in the 1863-1864 time frame, is making a load of money. He's got some investors in this boat. He's like half owner or quarter owner of the ship. And he's making a ton of money moving freight because he is known as a guy that gets the job done in a hurry. Works his crew very hard, works his boat very hard. He was known for pushing the limits. He at one point set a speed record uh, between two points on the Mississippi River. Um, This is a guy who wanted to get paid and who was getting paid at the expense of working his, his vessel nearly to death. Not to mention his crew was probably not the biggest fan of this guy either because he worked them like dogs moving freight on and off the ship and kind of keeping things uh, keeping things moving at a very quick clip. So the speed part of this is going to come up in the conversation. But another thing to think about when we get to James Cass Mason is the fact that by the time we get to 1865, the Southern economy is completely collapsed. The war is The war has taken such a toll that he can barely pay for this ship anymore. He can barely pay for the boat. He ends up taking on a bunch of partners. So by the time we get to the Sultana disaster on April 27th of 1865, James Cass Mason is now only 1 16th owner of this vessel. He has gone from making a lot of money to barely making it at all and effectively having his his career, his boat, subsidized by a group of investors who are all putting their hand in the kitty and getting a piece of the work that he's doing. This is an important thing to remember because the next part of this story is where we take yet another deeper, darker turn. Abraham Lincoln is killed. We mentioned that. Abraham Lincoln is killed in the middle of the month in April. There is basically no communication in the South anymore because all the telegraph lines have been cut. So as James Cass Mason is heading south down the river transporting cargo, he is also bringing with him massive stacks of newspapers and the news that Abraham Lincoln has been assassinated. So he is effectively breaking the news to every port, every town, every city that he stops in. One of the places he stops is Vicksburg, Mississippi. When he stops in Vicksburg, he has a meeting with Captain Reuben Hatch of the Union Army. Because Reuben Hatch is the quartermaster of the lower Mississippi area, he is the guy that is in charge of getting the soldiers home. He needs to work out the logistics. He needs to work out the the way that these folks are going to be moved. And so the government has told Hatch that they will pay $5 per head for, for soldiers and $10 per head for officers to the captains of these riverboats to transport them upriver. That is a lot of money. 
in any in any time frame you can we can even talk about today when we start talking about the volume of people and five and ten dollars a head it's going to add up pretty quick and in 1865 money that is big time stuff reuben hatch is the first very nefarious character we are going to meet in this passion play that ends up on the river killing 1700 people during this meeting in Pittsburgh with Mason and Hatch, they come up with an idea. And the idea is this. Hatch promises Mason that he's going to get a full load of soldiers to bring up the river. Says, this is going to happen. I will get you a full load of, of prisoners. He also said, I can get you more than a full load. How many more than 376 can we fit on that boat? The only catch here is that you're going to give me a kickback. So Hatch buys himself into this plan to load this boat up with soldiers to, to bring home. So Hatch, early in the war, uh, was the assistant quartermaster up in Cairo, Illinois, and he was arrested during that time, early in the war, for taking bribes uh, buying, while well, buying military supplies. So this is a bad guy. And overwhelming evidence, but he doesn't get kicked out of the Army. Why? His brother, named O.M. Hatch, was the Secretary of State for Illinois at that time, and he was a very strong financial supporter of President Lincoln. So Reuben Hatch never got court-martialed, never even appeared in trial, because O.M. Hatch, along with the governor of Illinois named Richard Yates, and a guy named Jesse K. Du Bois, who was a state auditor, wrote a letter to Lincoln signing off on it, proclaiming that Reuben Hatch was innocent and that the president needed to intervene and stop what was going to be an unjust trial for this guy. Well, this is politics, right? This is how it works. Somebody's got to pay the freight to get you to where you're at. And Abraham Lincoln endorsed the letter, um, sent it back to Illinois to the judge that was going to be in charge of this court-martial trial, and um, basically said, hey, squash this, make it go away. And as it turns out, he was cleared of all charges before he even went to trial. So Hatch has told Mason, hey man, I'm going to give you that full load of, uh, full load of troops, going to make this happen we got to make this happen pretty quick, and I'm going to load you up so so stoutly you're going to give me a kickback on every head that you put on board. Sounds like a great idea, at least for these guys. It sounds like a horrible idea in the sense of humanity and ethics because we're transporting prisoners of war, and now you're going to profit off of that, but that's the way the, that's the, way the cookie crumbles. So as we begin to see the wheels start to turn here, the math starts getting very convoluted. And the man who gets caught in the whirling gears of history in this story is Captain Frederick Speed. So Mason directs Speed to start loading trains and setting from Camp Hatch and sending them to the uh, port area where they're going to load this riverboat up with. During this time, it is discovered that the SS Sultana has a leaking boiler. So the SS Sultana, as it is being loaded with these troops, there needs to be some very quick decision-making done here because... The leaking boiler is going to prevent this, this ship from actually functioning properly. It's going to not allow it to make the speed it needs to make to get up the river on time. It's going to slow Mason down. He's not going to be able to make multiple trips. He might be stuck just making one trip, and he's not going to make enough money if he does that. So he calls in a local boiler repair engineer. That engineer shows up, takes one look at the situation, and says that, uh, well, this needs to be fixed in a very significant way. Basically, the whole boiler needs to come out, needs to be replaced, and that is the only way to do this safely. That is not going to be working for Captain Mason. That is going to take way, way too much time. 
So what happens? Well, the local boiler guy says, I can patch it if you want me to. Well, that's what they wanted him to do. His name was R.G. Taylor. He was contracted to fix the boiler. And the chief engineer on the boat said, do this as quickly as possible. He patches the boiler. He wanted to do the major repair. He saw evidence that there was going to be a problem with these boilers. But the ship's captain and engineer said, do it quickly and get us out of here. He does exactly what they ask. So we have a trainload of 1,500, give or take, troops on their way to the boat. Captain Frederick Speed has loaded that train. Speed gets called away for something else during this day that they're loading the trains to send the soldiers, the troops, if you will, towards the riverboat. Gets called away to do something else. In the meantime, our old friend Reuben Hatch has loaded a second train full of soldiers and sent it towards the water. Frederick Speed comes back to his post, recognizes that there's only a few hundred guys left now. About 1,500 went in the first load. Six or seven hundred went in the second load, and he throws a few more hundred onto a third load, which he doesn't know is the third load. He thinks it's the second train. So by the time all is said and done, this riverboat with a capacity of 367 people ends up with 2,300 Union prisoners of war on it. This boat has more people on it than the Titanic had on it. And this boat is maybe 10% the size of the Titanic. If you can imagine what the scene was on this thing, an example, there was so much weight on the deck, the upper deck of this boat, it started to sag and creak. So what the solution to that was, was to run to a lumber yard and get big wooden posts. And they carried the posts on and hammered them into place to be additional supports to keep the deck from collapsing because there was so much weight from these thousands and thousands of people on this riverboat. You can already start to do the math here and how this is going to go very, very wrong. We have an improperly repaired boiler. We have a ship that is loaded to seven times its rated capacity. And we also have the freight that's on board. Not only do we have all these people, the weight of the humanity on board, but there's also freight on this ship, including 120 tons of sugar, 100 hogs, 60 to 70 horses, 90 cases of wine, and an odd animal that will come into this story in a little while, the mascot of the ship, which was an alligator being held in a wooden crate up by the wheelhouse on the top deck. The man in that wheelhouse, of course, is our captain, James Cass Mason. And to speak to the badness of this situation, Mason begins to openly wonder if the ship will make it, if his riverboat, his steamboat, will actually make it to the first major stop where they need to go to start offloading soldiers in Cairo, Illinois. On April 26th, the ship leaves port. But before it leaves port, a photographer has set up a camera. And you can actually find this photo. It is posted. If you Google SS Sultana, you can find this in a Google image search. You will see a photo of what this ship looks like loaded with the thousands of of people that it shouldn't have on it. A 260 foot long riverboat with more passengers in the Titanic. Now the problem is when this photo was taken or when the photographer was setting up people on the port side of the riverboat started yelling, hey there's a photographer over here. A relative rarity in 1865. Now everybody runs around and takes pictures of everything. But in 1865, hey guys there's a photographer over here. 
everybody runs to the port side and the whole thing nearly capsizes. They nearly capsize the riverboat with everybody running to one side. Thankfully, uh, people take charge and even the load out again. But this is an indicator of what is to come for the poor souls that are on this boat. They are all so excited to be going home. They have survived the worst, some of the worst circumstances people in American history have ever lived through. And they're on this boat packed in like sardines, but they are going home, thankfully. 1,700 of them won't make it. a relatively short trip up to the Memphis, Tennessee area. They dock quickly, do some work there, and then it is now the 2 a.m. on the night, the morning of the 27th of April, 1865. And at 2 a.m., all hell breaks loose. The boilers, one boiler explodes, and then two additional boilers explode. The people of the area say that it made the sound of a hundred earthquakes and it shook their homes, blew out the windows, and for all intents and purposes, this is probably one of the largest explosions that humanity has ever seen to this point. You gotta remember when we talk about World War or the Civil War, we're just talking about cannonballs and you know, occasionally there'll be some gunpowder or a barrel of a barrel of gunpowder hidden under something to blow it up. But when we talk about the force of three giant steam boilers exploding, this is a level of intensity that people, human beings, have very rarely, if ever, experienced yet. So the four boilers on the ship, three of them blow up uh, within seconds of each other. This entire ship, which is made of wood and covered in oil-based paint and varnish and uh, pretty much everything else that is instantaneously combustible, bursts into flames from the back. So the rear of the ship is completely engulfed in fire. Uh, Hundreds, if not a thousand people, are killed almost instantly when these explosions happen. The second deck begins to collapse because of the weight. People are falling into the fire. Um, There is no such thing as a fire brigade on this ship because of the fact there are so many people. It is just raw, unbridled, confused panic. People are jumping into the river. People are falling into the river. And now we have to remember it's April, and this river has swelled so, so much because of the snow melt. It is basically like raging rapids. People are jumping into this thing. They are weakened. They haven't eaten. Those that have eaten are still emaciated from living in prison camps. So when these people jump into the water, it's not like they can just paddle over to shore. At this point in the river, it's probably close to a half mile wide, being fed by all this cold snow melt. The current is carrying people away. It is dragging people down. There is very little buoyant that they can hold on to. The the ship has blown into splinters. It's not like there's giant pieces of flotsam that they can hang on to. The stories of how people survived in the river are incredible. Those horses we talked about became unfortunate flotation devices for people. So those that weren't burned to death or drawn into the rushing river, have now all run to the front of the ship. The front of the ship is a bit of a safe haven at this point because the flames haven't gotten there. They're at the rear where the boilers were, where the explosion was, and the wind is blowing them backwards. So the wind is blowing the fire away from all these people on the front of the boat until the boat turns around. It is listless. There is no engine. 
There is no rudder. There is no way to control this thing. It is literally floating like a toy would float in your tub. So now the boat changes direction. And as it does, the, the fire is now being blown directly at the people in the front of the SS Sultana. They have no options. They have nowhere to go. The options are you stay and you burn or you jump and take your chances in the water. There is no good choice here. People were hanging on to the sides. One can, one can only imagine the level of horror that this brought to all these people and the people on the riverbanks as well. We're only seven miles north of Memphis, Tennessee here. Decently populated area. There's enough people that the people are running to the they're running to the, the banks of the river to watch this happening. People are almost immediately starting to mobilize and go rescue who they can to pluck people out of the water. Amazingly, a lot of the people that are performing these rescues are Confederate soldiers. We're in an area now, seven miles north of Memphis, we're actually in an area that uh, is Confederate-held. The war has just ended. The tensions probably could not be higher, yet these people heroically are taking their own personal watercraft, taking their own lives in, in their own hands to go out and try to save these Union soldiers who they were likely shooting at not even a month ago. It's insane. The, the, the circumstances of this are insane. So they're trying to save the people in the river. They are desperately, desperately trying to help everyone. Captain Mason survives the initial explosion. And he stayed on the ship to his credit, if you will. And there is no real crediting this man because at the root of this is his greed. But he does stay with the ship. And by all accounts... He is helping people by throwing things overboard they can hang on to. He is running around. He is doing everything in his power to try and mitigate and help people during this absolute disaster. He is never seen again. He perishes on his ship, likely in the fire of being overcome by smoke. Now the fire blowing towards the bow. Everybody has to abandon ship. Everybody jumps. And one of the first people rescued was a man named Private James Cook. And there was a steamship coming up the river called the Bostona 2. And the Bostona 2 arrives on the scene, um, you know, not, not, not too long after this happens. And the Bostona ends up saving about 200 people. Claim, people in Memphis claim that they could see the fire from where they were. And now during an era when there is no such thing as a, a building, as a skyscraper, as there's no such thing as a structure more than three or four stories max, it isn't out of the realm of reason that in this fairly flat part of the country, you could see the glow of this burning riverboat after hearing the reverberations of one of the largest explosions that anybody on earth had ever experienced. So that, to me, is partially, if not fully truthful, that they could actually see this happening seven miles up the river in the, in the middle of the night. Remember, it's, it's 2 a.m. By 9 a.m., the Sultana is completely burned to the waterline. Whatever is left of the ship is sunk. It goes beneath the waters of the Mississippi River. The next day, a lot of the bodies are being transported back to Memphis. Um, 786 survivors basically here, so we're talking roughly 1,700 people killed. Could be more. Who knows if the record-keeping was as good as it could have been, was as accurate as it could have been. But we'll just go with 1,700 for the sake of this conversation. They said that in Memphis, 
it was like being in hell. There were dead bodies laid out four blocks long along the water line, along the bank of the river. Hospitals overrun by people who were barely clinging to life. Of the people that actually got off the ship or were plucked out of the river, another couple hundred of those people died for various things. You know, people were grievously injured by flying wood, by debris, by splinters, people being hit in the head with things that, you know, miraculously made it to shore somehow, but then succumbed to their injuries. On June 7th, 1865, a couple of months later, the last survivor is released from a Memphis hospital to go home. And I say the last survivor, I mean the last survivor that's, that was still in the area. So how was this covered in the news? It basically wasn't. The major Eastern newspapers maybe wrote a couple hundred word blurb on the back page. Some of the small newspapers in the central part of the country covered the story and told the story as best they could. But the real story of the Sultana isn't necessarily the explosion as much as it is the why and the how of the explosion and the overcrowding of the ship, which we've covered. Those three men, one of which, Frederick Speed, will come to the center point of this story. James Cass Mason is dead. And Captain Reuben Hatch is such a bad guy, he's only going to get worse. So why did this happen? How does a steamship explode? How does a steam boiler fail? How does 1865 bring us a maritime disaster the likes of which our country has never seen or experienced again? And it should be mentioned, when the Titanic sunk, 1,500 people died in the North Atlantic in freezing cold, iceberg-infested waters. When the Sultana sunk, 1,700 people died on the Mississippi River. It's incredible. We now switch gears and go to the mechanical side of this story to talk about exactly what history has told us happened, how it happened, and why it happened. If there is one of the most, one of the most fascinating phenomena that exists on Earth is the power of steam. And the power of steam is what brought all this tragedy on to the people on the Sultana. The harnessing of steam was one of mankind's greatest accomplishments for so many reasons. Steam continues to be the main way that we make electricity in the modern world. We boil water, we send it through turbines, those turbines spin generators, and those generators are what makes the electricity that I am recording this podcast on, and well, in some way, shape, fashion, or form, the way you're listening to it as well. So we think about steam engines and we think about steam-powered things as being antique and old-fashioned, but at the end of the day, steam is one of the most powerful elements of the modern world. So how does a steam boiler work, and, and specifically, how did the steam boilers work on the SS Sultana? They were what are called fire tube boilers, and what this means is you had effectively under the deck of the ship, you had four giant iron cylinders. These cylinders, 46 inches in diameter, about an inch and a half thick plate made of iron, and they're 18 feet long. So uh, about four feet around and 18 feet long. And inside these giant cylinders are a bunch of tubes. They look almost like spaghetti. There's 24 of these small tubes. And around those tubes is water. 
So these boilers, um, the, what happens is you have a you have a furnace. Each boiler has a furnace. You're shoveling coal into it, and that coal burns. That makes heat, and it sends the heat through those 24 tubes. Those 24 tubes then heat the water to a uh, to a boiling point, if you will, to a pressurized boiling point. That steam gets funneled towards the paddle wheels. The steam pushes the pistons, and that is what causes the paddle wheels to turn. And voila, you have yourself a traveling steamboat. There are massive forces involved inside steam boilers. In this case, these giant 18-foot-long cylinders were pressurized to about 145 PSI. And what we know is that we know this boiler had to be repaired because one of the seams was leaking. And rather than pull the whole boiler out and replace a large piece of it, a small patch was added to that area that was leaking. And that was done, of course, for speed to get the boat out of out of port and to make money with uh, hauling this insanely overcrowded load of Union soldiers. We know that the boilers were not in the greatest condition. Now, this ship is, the boat, I should say, is only about three years old, right? We talk about it being uh, built in 1862, 1863 up in Cincinnati, and the boilers on this thing were aging very rapidly. And while they had their gauges installed, while they had a couple of relief plugs installed that were supposed to prevent any sort of a problem like this, we know that when the inspection was done for the repair by R.G. Taylor that he noted a few things. And one of the things he noted was that some of the sheets were burnt. And what the sheets were were basically kind of, uh, let's call it the bottom of the boiler, where the main fire, if you will, the, the main furnace temperature is kind of traveling up through as it's moving those hot gases it's those gases are traveling through the tubes that are immersed in water causing the water to boil so when he sees these burnt sheets in the boiler he he mentions this in his report and he does mention that the boilers were not in the type of condition that he would have wanted them to be in and that he did recommend making a full repair rather than just doing the patch so why would a boiler that's only three years old be in bad shape? What would cause this to happen? The first thing that causes it to happen is the actual water that is boiling. You have to remember, in 1865, there was no water filtration that was uh, available for anybody to use on these steamboats. Now, if there was, it was a very basic style that would allow some of the sediment to fall out. But Mark Twain has described or did describe the Mississippi River in the best way possible for the context of this story. Twain once said that the Mississippi River was too thick to drink and too thin to plow. What does that mean? Well, we all know it's called the Muddy Mississippi for a reason. So all the water that's going into these boilers is coming straight out of the river, and because it's coming straight out of the river, it is full of mud and muck and sediment. And that sediment doesn't go anywhere, but it settles, and it settles to the bottom of these giant boilers. So an interesting study was performed by a man named Patrick Jennings, who is the lead engineer for a company called Hartford State or Hartford Steam Boiler. And this study was done just a few years ago. Jennings was commissioned by his company to do this study, to go back and read all the testimony and, and kind of put in an actual real reasoned scientific cause for the explosion of the SS Sultana. And his findings are, are really unbelievable and detailed. So one of the things he talks about is that for every 125 gallons of Mississippi River water that was coming into that boat, basically a half pound of sediment was coming with it. And as you can imagine, these huge boilers were using a lot of water to move these big ships, especially one that's trying to fight its way upstream against the current of a rushing, flooded Mississippi River. 
So as the sediment comes in, it doesn't boil, obviously. As the water's boiling, that sediment begins to, to settle out, and it settles down at the bottom of the boiler. And what happens is the, that sediment becomes like an insulator. So now when the furnace is burning, it's heating the iron, the iron is getting exceptionally hot because now there's a layer of sediment on top that acts like an insulator. So it's taking all that much more heat to filter through the sediment and then actually heat the water up. The same can be said for the fire tubes. The fire tubes inside the boiler start to get caked with this sediment. It gets baked on them, basically. We've all seen it. We've all seen a car that's, you know, you drive, you go off-road with your buddies, go, go wheeling or something, and you get muck all over your truck, and you don't wash it off for a couple days, and it bakes on. I mean, it turns into a very hard shell. So that's happening inside these boilers. So now everything is working far too hard. Everything. And one of the reasons why this boiler perhaps was leaking and why Taylor was called in to fix it was because of the fact that it was working so hard, the metal was becoming so brittle from expanding and contracting and being overheated that it was starting to weaken. So now we start to see some pieces coming together here. This, the type of iron that these boilers were made out of was not good. It was the best they had at the time, but it was called charcoal hammered number one. And the reason it wasn't good for boilers is because metallurgy being such a new science at that point, no one understood that the more you heated and cooled this stuff, the more brittle it became. Hence, the leaking boiler. It becomes brittle. It starts to split. It starts to fail. This is a major problem when we start talking about steam. Let's go back to steam theory a little bit here. We talked about the boiler being 145 PSI rated for its internal pressure. We all know that water boils at 212 degrees. Well, we also all know that as we increase the pressure on things, the boiling point rises up. So at 145 PSI, the boiling point of water is 363 degrees. So the temperature you need to achieve in the boiler to make the amount of steam pressure you want to make, make that 145 PSI, that boiler needs to be at 363 degrees to achieve that temperature. Under normal circumstances, when there is no muck or sediment insulating the base and or the fire tubes of the boiler no big thing at this point now the base of the boiler the fire tubes and even the outer portion of the boiler start to rise well above that 363 degree temperature to the point now that we're really starting to stress the metallurgy and remember this thing was patched together a patch was basically riveted on the outside of this to prevent what was then a leaking boiler so Moving again on with steam, a cubic foot of steam, or rather a cubic foot of water, becomes 1,600 cubic feet of steam. Water expands 1,600 times when you boil it. The volume of, you know, a, a, a droplet of water becomes the equivalent of 1,600 droplets of steam, if we can talk about it like that. 1,600 times expansion. When we're holding it in that boiler at 363 degrees, no big thing. When some of that steam starts to escape to the outside atmosphere where there is no pressure, where a 212-degree boiling point is present, we have a massive, massive problem because as soon as that steam starts to escape, it expands immediately. When it hits the atmosphere, it expands 1,600 times. Now imagine a boiler that is 46 inches in diameter, 18 feet long, filled with water, and all of a sudden the boiling water starts to escape, and that steam immediately expands. Take a soda can, if you would like, to prove this experiment out. The steam is being simulated by the carbonation in the can. 
lay the can on its side and take an exacto knife or take a some sort of a, a safety object you're not going to cut yourself with and puncture that can and try to run the knife down the side of it. You'll notice a very familiar phenomenon happen. It will blow the can open. It'll blow it open like a baked potato. And that's precisely what happened to the boilers here on the Sultana. What Mr. Jennings discovered and what Mr. Jennings surmises happened is that patch failed. And as soon as that patch failed, the steam started to escape and immediately blew open one of these boilers. The force of the explosion of the one boiler failing then ruptured the other two boilers immediately, causing them to explode and causing the inferno that would ultimately sink the Sultana and take the lives of 1,700 people. There was another theory that was present that Jennings' findings disproves. And the other theory that was present at the time was that the boat was, quote-unquote, careening. We use the word careen in, in modern vernacular. We talk about somebody that's kind of, you know, sideways coming around a corner or leaning over coming around the corner. Well, the phenomenon of careening in a riverboat was the same thing, meaning the boat was leaning. So the theory in the 1860s was that the boat actually was leaning to one side as it was navigating the river, thereby sloshing all the water of the boilers to one side, thereby causing that bottom iron sheet to be overheated, and the second that the water ran back across that iron sheet, it expanded into steam in a flash and blew the boiler up because of a sudden burst of pressure. Jennings, through all of his year-long research, reading all the testimony, reading all the testimonials, reading all the stories of survivors, reading all the stories of engineers, reading period texts, texts from that time on steam boiler operation, says, you know what? That isn't what happened. Not one single person mentioned the boat leaning. They said it's a theory. They said it could have happened, but people were asleep in their beds. Nobody was uh, unnerved by the speed the boat was traveling. It was going against the current. It was maybe going five to seven miles an hour, and it wasn't at a, po a point in the river where it would have been making a hard turn. Yes, it was passing some small islands in the Mississippi, but this was a gentle kind of curve in the river. So careening, as far as Jennings says, is ruled out. And you'll read a lot of stuff on the Sultana, if you want to, like I have, that will blame careening for this problem. But Jennings really does take that theory and really blow it out of the water, being able to apply the modern knowledge that we have. So why did this happen? Long story short, it happened because of poor boiler maintenance. It happened because of overworking the boat. And it happened because nobody was keeping up on the things that needed to be kept up upon for the simple fact is that they were trying to make money. In the 1850s, the United States placed some regulations on riverboats as to what needed to be there, what, what, what didn't need to be there as far as safety and stuff like that. But there were so few people to enforce these laws, especially during the Civil War, and such a drastic need for the services of the riverboats, it didn't do anybody any good to take any of them offline. So that being said, now you know the why of the Sultana explosion in general terms. Why does a boiler fail? It fails because steam escapes. That steam escaping causes a massive release of pressure. The masses release, massive release of pressure causes the outer shell of the boiler to fail, and it blows apart like an 18-foot-long tin can, which then takes out everything else in the same area with it. The amount of stored energy in one of these boilers, as calculated by Jennings using some period texts, is amazing. The stat that he gives during a speech that I was able to watch and take notes on is that there was enough stored energy in that boiler to launch the boiler itself 5,200 feet into the air. 
if you poked a hole in the side of it and were able to contain the energy and force it out, it would launch an 18-foot-long, 4-foot-diameter iron boiler a mile in the sky. That is the level of force we're talking about when those poor people experienced what was described as the force of 100 earthquakes blowing up underneath them. And as I said, this is a story that just keeps getting worse. Believe it or not, the final chapter in this one is probably the worst one of all. The final chapter of the SS Sultana happens as so many other events have happened over the course of history when it comes down to power and politics and finding the blame, finding the root cause for something and finding a person to pin it on. The only person that faced any sort of trial for what happened on the SS Sultana was Captain Speed. Ironically, his name, Captain Speed. Captain Speed was brought up on court-martial charges. He was convicted on the court-martial and then had another court-martial trial. He appealed, and it was overturned. And in my estimation, take my opinion for what it's worth, from what I have read, from the accounts I've read, from the testimony I've read, Speed is an innocent victim in this only in the fact that, one, he did not know that all these people were going on one steamship. Speed's only job was to get the guys on the train and get them to the river. So Speed was unaware that they were all going on one ship. Speed was also taking off, taken off of his post, as I mentioned, and was not informed that he was loading three trains, not two. When he came back to load what he expected was the second train, it was the third train, he was not told by anyone. Least of which, of course, Reuben Hatch, who wanted every blessed dime he could get out of the poor people he was sending to their death, unbeknownst to him. Even worse, during this moment when they're loading the riverboat, there is a second riverboat waiting to be loaded. A second riverboat that is empty that could have taken at least half of the load off, the, off of the Sultana and likely saved everyone's life. But this riverboat captain was not on the payroll. He was not on the docket. He was not putting money in anybody's pocket. So that riverboat, when troops were asking why they couldn't get on that one, once they noticed how full the one they were getting on was, they were lied to and told that that riverboat had smallpox that the people on that riverboat were sick and that they wanted nothing to do with getting on that second boat. So as all these men were jamming themselves onto a riverboat that would ultimately kill them, the majority of them, they watched another riverboat leave port with 17 people on it and some cargo. 17 people that they assumed, one of which or more, were infected with smallpox. It was a complete lie. So Frederick Speed eventually is... His court-martial is overturned. He does not suffer any sort of consequence for this. Whether he was in on it or not, there's no real knowledge of that directly. Reuben Hatch, almost immediately after the Sultana explosion, Reuben Hatch leaves the service, leaves the United States Army, and is not ever prosecuted, let alone even really questioned, about his role in the Sultana disaster. Again, his political connections through his brother and through the state governments of Illinois and the political machine, if you will, of Abraham Lincoln. 
protected him. Even though Lincoln was gone, he had been assassinated, but they did protect Reuben Hatch. Hatch went on to live, perhaps unfortunately, a long life. And of course, we know what happened to Captain Mason. James Cass Mason was killed during the fire following the explosion of his ship, the SS Sultana. Adding insult to injury, the few survivors of this disaster, and we're talking really a few hundred people here, appealed to the government for a special pension. They were going to get their army pension, but they appealed for a special pension for surviving what was basically um, a complete gross negligence that nearly killed them, and the government didn't give them anything. They got their war pension, they got their military pension as promised, but they did not get any sort of special pension for being part of this mess that was unfortunately caused by greed on behalf of a handful, if not just one, officer of the U.S. Army. The irony here, of course, is that once the passengers who survived were able to travel again, they had to get on another steamboat to go where they were going. I really can't imagine wanting to do that. I can't imagine finally wanting to get home. You think about the hellacious couple of years, in some cases, some of these men spent sitting in Confederate prison camps. Then they get on this ship. They survive this disaster on the Mississippi River and then finally have to get on another boat. The full definition of God just get me home was the lives that these men led. The fact that there was a reunion year in and year out, up until 1937, of survivors of the Sultana is amazing. The reunions, of course, as all reunions do, would thin out over the years as more and more of the survivors passed away. But in the Mount Olive Cemetery, as dedicated on July 4th, 1912, there stands, this is the Mount Olive Cemetery in Knoxville, I should say, there stands a memorial for the Sultana. And there are memorials in this area, the Knoxville, Tennessee area, and actually in Arkansas as well, as that's where some of this took place, remembering the Sultana. But very little is ever spoken about it in pop culture because, again, it didn't make the headlines of the news. 96-year-old Elkanah Millard was the final survivor of the Sultana who died in 1937 at the age of 96 years. And let's for a moment consider the life that Elkanah Millard lived. Elkanah Millard, as a very young man, obviously, was a Civil War soldier, was a Civil War prisoner of war, lives through the Sultana disaster, lives through the early part of the 20th century, lives through the creation of the automobile, lives through World War I, lives through the Great Depression, and dies at 96 years old. Think of the life that that guy had to be born in the early 1830s and die in the late 1930s is pretty amazing. Or I should say to be born in the early 1840s and to die in the late 1930s is absolutely astounding. The legacy of the Sultana is pretty interesting in the fact that it was after this explosion that the government and other entities got very serious about boiler safety, very uh, significant advances were made in inspections, in uh, technology, in safety devices, in trying to prevent this from happening. And the ideal situation here is that we always learn from stuff like this, and that's exactly what happened. The SS Sultana, the people on that ship, many of them did not die in vain because of the fact that moving after this 
when people figured out what happened and spent time figuring out what happened is really the important legacy of the Sultana. The final footnote to this story goes back to the Mississippi River and goes back to how things change over time. For many years, people were searching for remains, for parts and pieces of the Sultana in the river because they knew where it blew up. But the river being so swelled and the Mississippi River being the kind of live entity that it is, they could never find anything. And they thought, well, all the stuff just gotten buried under the silt and under the muck that is just flowing constantly on the muddy, mighty Mississippi. And then a guy in a farm about two miles away from the area that people thought this happened ran into parts of a boat when he was trying to plow his field. The river, over the course of time, as rivers do, changed course. And during those 1865 floods, the river had widened so much and had had such a violent current that it carried almost all the pieces of the burned up and exploded boat away to the point where the river had changed course by about two miles by the time people actually started finding the significant parts and pieces of the Sultana. And they didn't find them at the bottom of the river. They found them in a farmer's field. How wild is that? The story of the Sultana is not a happy one, but it's an interesting one in my estimation because it is, in my opinion, one of the greatest mechanical kind of catastrophes in American history. It is a very largely forgotten story, and it's one that I have uh, some interesting passion to read about because of that, that convergence of not only the Civil War, but this emerging and evolving technology of steam power. And of course, the greed and the background of the story is absolutely amazing. So there you have it. That is the story in a pocket version of the SS Sultana. As I always tell you, you can go to Google Images, you can find all kinds of imagery showing the Sultana, one photograph of the boat, and a lot of lithographs and paintings of the explosion and fire. There are great resources to find online to seek out more information as well, including that docu the documentary and lecture I told you given by the steam engineer from the Hartford Steam Boiler Company, Patrick Jennings, which I referenced several times during this discussion. Thanks for listening to the Dorkomotive Podcast, and I promise on the next episode I will be back with a happier subject. You know why? Because there isn't a more depressing one than this. We'll see you next time.